After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Tolmas, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nathan, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know... There is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, 
from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself among, along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Thanks, Vicky. I'll pop this over to the side because I've, uh, I've been mic'd up. Not with the Brittany mic, sorry. Uh, that'll have to be for another time. Uh, we, we're actually going to focus on um, verses 1 to 16 today. So sorry, John, but uh, where is, where's John gone? Where's he gone? There he is. Sorry for disappointing earlier, um, but you covered it in the song, so that's fine. We're going to cover verses 1 to 16 mostly today, so keep that open in your Bibles. All right, here we go. Um, I've called this the way to Jerusalem, but here we go. Here's, here's where I want to start. Who knows what that is? That is not turmeric or turmeric. It is turmeric. It has an R in it, friends. Turmeric. Okay, friends, who thinks it's pronounced turmeric? Who thinks it's pronounced turmeric? Thank you, thank you. Ah, oh, this is uh, this is a real struggle for me. Uh, turmeric is pronounced turmeric, but so many people pronounce it turmeric or turmeric that they've actually started selling it without the R for some reason. They've just deleted the R because uh, we don't pronounce it anyway, so we'll just get rid of it. So you can buy turmeric for forty dollars a kilo. Gosh, inflation. Friends, have you ever been in a situation where? You were right about something, but everyone around you thought you were wrong. You ever been in one of those situations? I'm guessing some of the more strong-willed among us, like me, are thinking, oh my gosh, this is my life all of the time. Uh, and maybe there's a few humble people out there, probably uh, our spouse or our kids sitting next to us. The kids have gone out mostly, but uh, they maybe have something a little bit different to say about the fact. Uh, and in fact, maybe there's even some humble people out there who uh, you can think of a time when you started to believe you were wrong because everyone around you was saying something different. Turned out you were right, but you started to think maybe I am wrong. For me, oh, I find I'm uh, a lone voice a lot of the time. Maybe it's just a bit of arrogance coming through. Uh, but it happened a lot during covid uh, I was one of those slightly weird people uh, who actually read the public health orders, you know, the legal document, not the website, the legal document. Um, and, uh, and so I was often talking with a bunch of people during COVID who were convinced that this and this was the rule, such and such was the rule. Uh, and I'd be trying to say something different. I'd be, yeah, to the extent that on one occasion, uh, I actually uh, telephoned Service New South Wales um, to tell them that they had an error on their website uh, because the COVID advice didn't actually match the public health order. Um, it turned out, actually, that there was an error on the first page of the public health order, uh, and so that, that they corrected for me. Um, so uh, I guess in that instance, I was wrong, but I was kind of also right because, actually, they were wrong. So 
Anyway, that time's passed. I'll get over it. I'll be fine. Uh, thanks for thinking of me. Oh, okay. For Paul in this passage, he finds himself the lone voice in his determination to go to Jerusalem. Throughout this passage, he repeatedly finds himself being told not to go, that he shouldn't go, even by those who are closest to him. Uh, Some even speculate on this passage that Paul's being told by the Holy Spirit not to go. So why is Paul so stubborn in going to Jerusalem? We're going to see why as we head through this passage today, and we'll work out whether we think Paul was right or not after all. Okay? So what, what's happening in this passage? I want to do a little bit of a fly-through. Um, just to It's okay if you don't take all of this in, um, but I just want to do a bit of a fly-through so we kind of know what's happening. So we've just seen previously that Paul has departed from Miletus. So you'll see there's a, a star kind of three-quarters of the way up just below Ephesus. So he's departed from Miletus, which is where the Ephesian elders Um, came down and and met him, okay? So he's not actually in Ephesus, but just south of it. Then we get a bit of a sailing journey. He goes to um, Kos or Kos, just below, and then to Rhodes, which is not the one near Eastwood, uh, just the one in in, uh, Europe or Middle East or wherever it is, Europe, I guess. Uh, And then he goes around to Patara, and then he takes this long journey across the sea. Um, They pass by Cyprus. You'll see the island in the middle, they land at Tyre. And so it's probably, uh, it's probably a larger ship they're on because it can actually go uh, across the sea as opposed to hugging the coastline. Um, and so the ship makes a quick journey, but then it takes a bit of time to unload the cargo in Tyre. And so they can hang around there for a week while the ship does that. And so while they're in Tyre, which you'll see is towards the bottom, uh, they find the disciples that live there. They go and find them out. Uh, and these disciples, they ask Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, where he's planning to go. When they do uh, leave, all those disciples, including their wives and children, they go down to the beach. Uh, They pray together on the beach, they kneel down, and they say goodbye, and they get on the ship again. They sail uh, a little bit down uh, to Ptolemais. Uh, They stay there for a day, and they leave the next day. They finally reach Caesarea, which you'll see is the last stop on the sea, Uh, and they're going to go on road uh, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. There's a few interesting things that happen at Caesarea. They meet Philip the Evangelist. Uh, He's not Philip the Apostle, not one of the 12. He's actually one of the seven who were chosen to wait on tables in Acts 6, um, but who ended up being uh, a great evangelist. Uh, And we find out Philip had four daughters who prophesy, and then another prophet comes, Uh, one named Agabus, who actually features back in Acts 11 a while ago. He comes down from Judea, which is kind of north, but it's down the hill, something like that, Um, probably from near Jerusalem. Uh, And so uh, he comes and he uh, prophesies about Paul suffering in Jerusalem uh, so that when Paul's friends hear it, they plead with him, don't go to Jerusalem. Even Paul's friends who are with him on that journey. But Paul says, I am ready even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And so eventually his friends give up and uh, they, they go up the road uh, on their way to Jerusalem with some of the disciples come with them from Caesarea and they come to the home of Nason, 
uh, who's got a, a cool name. Uh, if you want a, a, a suggestion for future babies, Nason with an M. Uh, and they go and stay with him, and they're kind of in Jerusalem. So that's the, that's the main bit that we're going to focus on today. Whew, bit of a whirlwind. A lot of the commentaries just call this section the journey to Jerusalem. Good name, I guess. Uh, I think that's a really important part of it. We're going to look at the journey to Jerusalem and what is, what's the significance of that. Uh, but there's a few other things I want to point out along the way. And if you got one of those outlines uh, when you came in, uh, you'll see there's a, a couple of other points on it. Uh, we'll talk about the journey, but I also want to talk about prophecy from this passage. Uh, I think that's important to have a look at. Uh, and also, we're going to talk about fellowship and affection in Christ. So they're the three things. It's kind of a semi-three mini-sermons. Sorry about that. We'll figure it all out together. Um, but I think they're, they're important things to see from this passage. So firstly, um, let's talk about that journey, the journey to Jerusalem. Why is Paul going? We don't actually really see much of the reason given in Acts, which is kind of interesting. Um, but we actually know uh, from Romans 15, uh, 25 and 26, you'll see 26 up on the screen, that we actually find out he's bringing an offering. Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor uh, among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. So we found out from Romans that he's bringing an offering for the churches. Luke does mention it a bit later in Acts 24, 17. Uh, After an absence of seven years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Uh, but that's, that's after all this happens. That's after he's been in Jerusalem. Paul's just recounting it. Uh, and so Luke doesn't emphasize this as the main game in Acts. It's kind of interesting, uh, even though it does seem to be important to Paul and Romans. See, Luke emphasizes something a little bit different. In Luke's gospel, one of the really important things that, that you notice as you read through is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Other translations say Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. It's quite deliberate. And now Luke again, who is also writing this book of Acts, same guy, he's deliberate in highlighting some of the parallels between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Now, Gibson, when he preached, he mentioned a little bit about this last week, um, but I'm going to unpack it a little bit more. The first mention we get of Paul deciding to go to Jerusalem is in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. That's where he got the offerings. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Now, that word decided, I bolded it on the screen for us. Um, it literally is, is the words um, put on the spirit. That's kind of what it says in the original put on the spirit. And so there's a little bit of debate. Different translations go different ways. Um, a bit of a debate whether what put on the spirit means. It could be, you know, put on, Paul put on his spirit. In other words, like it was on his heart to go. He just decided. And that's kind of the way that NIV has taken it. Um, it could also mean uh, the Holy Spirit has put on him, kind of like the Holy Spirit has compelled him to go to Jerusalem. Um, 
and, and we'll see that a little bit later. But either way, whatever it is, whatever this particular verse is saying, there's definitely this sense of conviction and resolve, right? It's, it's a real definite thing. Paul must go to Jerusalem. He's setting his face to Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, you can see that conviction in the following sentence. Um, see that word uh, there, I must visit Rome also. That must is a particular word that Luke uses. Uh, it's, it's day in Greek, but you kind of don't, you don't need to remember that. Um, but it's a word where he says must uh, to indicate a kind of divine importance. So Luke is using that same word uh, in Luke 9.22 where he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, or when, when Jesus says this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and on the third day raised again. It's kind of this divine must. It's a God-ordained thing when he says that. Um, and so I reckon it's fair to say that Luke is drawing some pretty significant parallels between Jesus' resolve and divine intent and Paul's resolve and divine intent. Okay, I think it's fair to say that. Um, and we see this divine intent again in chapter 20, verse 22. Back to Acts. Um, we now see Paul explicitly say, he says, now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So we see this, this uh, expression of, of being compelled by the Spirit, being bound to the Spirit. So there's this real divine intent as well as this strong resolve like Jesus. We get a few more parallels as well between uh, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem um, and Paul's when Agabus the prophet comes on the scene in our passage. Uh, and so Agabus, he appears um, and he comes over to us. He takes Paul's belt, ties his own hands and feet with it and says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He predicts that Paul will be handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. Um, that's very familiar language, isn't it? That's very deliberate language. Have a look on the screen at what Luke says in 9.22, in fact, what Jesus says. Um, that passage again. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law. That's the Jews. And then what do we get in Luke 18, 31, uh, 32? He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Do you see it? Rejected by the Jews and delivered over to the Gentiles. There's a real parallel going on, and I think it's quite deliberate. Now, while Paul isn't killed in Jerusalem like Jesus was, right? And we can certainly take these parallels too far, thinking that in some way Paul is trying to be a quasi-Jesus, a new Messiah. He's trying to kind of recreate Jesus. He's not trying to do that. So we could take it too far. But I think what he's doing is taking up his cross and following Jesus. It's really interesting, just after that Luke 9.22 passage, what does Jesus say in the following verse? He says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
just after Jesus has predicted his suffering and rejection, he tells us to take up our cross. In fact, in both Luke's gospel and what Luke records, and in Acts uh, that he records as well, there's even a triple prediction of Jesus' suffering. There's a triple prediction in Luke. Jesus predicts his suffering three times. And then in Acts, we get these three predictions of Paul suffering as well. And even in the end, oh, sorry. Okay. Well, if you want, you can have a little look at the back. Uh, just have a squeeze round. In fact, I can even move. It's actually not that hard. There we go. Um, so we have three predictions. Good thing I've got the lapel mic. Um, we've got three predictions. I feel like I'm giving a seminar now, but anyway. Um, of, of uh, Jesus' suffering and Paul's suffering. Hey, Ezzy. Um, and then look at what the resolution is. This is really interesting. Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, yet not my will, but yours be done. And what did Paul's friends say after this? When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Coincidence? I think not. So we see these strong parallels. But what does this actually mean? What are the implications? Well, first, we need to see that Paul's discipleship, it involves a conviction to serve Christ even in the face of suffering. Despite Paul's special role as, apostle, as an apostle, yes, it's different. I think this account still shows us what cross-shaped discipleship looks like. It's costly. It's driven by gospel purposes, and it's in the footsteps of Christ. If we wish to follow Jesus and to receive all the blessings and benefits of salvation and eternal life, which we will, we must also be willing to endure suffering of this world and the difficulties we face as Christians along the way as we look at the glory and joy set before us. And so, friends, this probably means giving up some level of comfort in our lives by making decisions about work or about family or about relationships that might be hard but are good for our godliness and the gospel. It really should mean us giving up material things by being generous towards the gospel, by being generous towards our church and the work of the gospel. And, friends, it might even mean physical or emotional suffering as we speak and affirm the unpopular message of the gospel in our world today. Serving Christ in the face of suffering. That's the first thing I think we see uh, from this passage and from Paul's journey to Jerusalem like Jesus. The second thing that we see today, go back? Yeah, sure. Okay, all right. There's a lot of passages, but mainly in that first section. Too weird to be at the back. Don't have one of these things. All right. Second thing I want to talk about today, and I think is really important to talk about from this passage, is prophecy and the Spirit. In this passage, we get a real picture of a time in church where the Spirit, he seems to be playing this really active role in speaking prophecy. If you just read Acts by itself, well, it's not really surprising that charismatic and Pentecostal churches expect these kind of spiritual activity in the weekly gatherings and normal lives of Christian people 
today. It's not really surprising. I started my journey as a Christian in a Pentecostal church, um, but I actually think uh, having been in that kind of church, I think it's a bit of a misunderstanding of what God is promising us will happen in Christ. So I think what we're seeing at the, in this passage, and in Acts in particular, is a particular moment in salvation history. It's the beginning of what's called the last days. It's a time we live in between the revelation and salvation, sorry, between, yes, the revelation of salvation in Jesus, his death and resurrection on the cross, and the coming perfection and new creation, right? It's, we're in between the last, in those last days. It's the age there that is being ushered in, in Acts, with increased signs and increased supernatural activity. It's in a similar way to the way that Exodus in the Old Testament, the first salvation of God's people, is brought in through Moses through signs and wonders and spectacular things that God is doing. And so I actually think that's particularly evident here in the way that the prophecies that we see in this passage, they're really connected to Old Testament prophecies um, in a particular way. The first mention in our passage of uh, spiritual, the spirit speaking or spiritual things is in verse 4. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, but I want to go to the first explicit mention of prophecy. It's in verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. Uh, they reach Caesarea and they stay at the house of Philip the Evangelist who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Wow. Well done, Philip. Not just four Christian daughters, Four daughters who prophesy. That's goals, right? We all want that. I don't know how he kept the boys away from them, though. They're unmarried. But that's it. We don't hear anything else about them from Luke. I think still, though, we can draw some brief conclusions, even just by the fact that Luke mentions them. See, Luke points out that they're unmarried women. He doesn't define them by a relationship to a husband. And more than that, they are prophesying. That's the most desirable spiritual gift, according to 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul writes. Now, I think to highlight this is actually pretty countercultural in Luke's time. And I think it shows the importance of women in the early church, in the church in general. It affirms that the sisters among us are equal and valued in Christ. I think that's really important. But I think more than that, Luke is actually highlighting uh, this particular thing to show the active fulfillment of a prophecy that is in the Old Testament book of Joel. See, Joel 2.28, you'll listen carefully, I'm sure, uh, it says, afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. In those days, the last days. Now notice in that prophecy, not just the emphasis of both men and women, though that's really important, uh, both having the spirit poured out, but do you see that exactly what is happening here? Philip has four daughters who prophesy. That is the words of this prophecy exactly. 
And in fact, this prophecy is even quoted by Peter in Acts 2.17 at Pentecost when the disciples first receive the Holy Spirit. Peter identifies this prophecy as being fulfilled. And so these daughters who prophesy, they are evidence of this new age, the last days. They are evidence of God's fulfillment of his promise in Joel. So I think we can particularly see that this activity is connected to ushering in those last days. But there's more prophecy. Agabus appears in verse 10. He's specifically identified as a prophet. We've seen him, as I mentioned previously, in Acts 11.28. And in Acts 11.28, he seems like he's a legit prophet. His words about the famine, Luke actually says the famine took place. And so Agabus comes up to Paul, and he acts out the prophetic word he speaks. He binds his hands and his feet with Paul's belt. Now, I think there's a few important things to notice about um, this prophecy and these verses. This is actually the only time in the whole Bible where the phrase, this is what the Holy Spirit says, or traditionally it says, thus says the Holy Spirit. That's the only time in the Bible where this phrase is used. It's the, the phrase, thus says, is used in Revelation a bit uh, to talk about what Jesus says and what God says. But it's actually used heaps in the Old Testament prophets, introducing what God is speaking truly through a prophet. In fact, thus says the Lord. Anyone want to guess how many times it appears in the Old Testament? Thus says the Lord. Over, sorry, nearly a thousand times. And most of those are in the prophets. Nearly a thousand times we get the words, thus says the Lord. But only here in the New Testament do we get, thus says the Holy Spirit. I think it's really deliberate. Um, we see in Agabus' actions um, as well that he's acting out the prophecy symbolically, which is really common in the Old Testament prophets. It's much less common in the New Testament. Ahijah, in 1 Kings, he tears his robe into like 12 pieces to symbolize the 12 tribes. Ezekiel, uh, you might remember him lying down and doing all sorts of scary things. Isaiah does it, he acts out his prophecies. Jeremiah and Hosea, even with his family and his children, God tells him to actually physically act out this prophecy. It's really strong in the Old Testament. And so, I think what's happening is Agabus' prophecy is being identified with those Old Testament prophets who were truly speaking the words of God. And so we get this real sense that Agabus is legit. He's speaking the words of the Lord, but now through the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Holy Spirit. And so we see that God's divine purposes for Paul well, they're actually orchestrating that he will suffer in Jerusalem. But there's a few issues. One of the issues we come up against in this passage is whether there are contradictory messages from the Spirit or whether Paul is actually disobeying the Spirit in going to Jerusalem. So have a look at verse 4. I mentioned that we skipped over it. We'll come back to it now. Verse 4, it seems like the disciples in Tyre urge Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. 
wait a second. Didn't we just see a chapter earlier that the Spirit compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem? What's going on? I reckon there's a simple answer. See how this sits with you. I reckon that the answer is the disciples entire had some awareness, perhaps through revelation from the Spirit, some kind of prophetic word, that Paul would indeed suffer if he went to Jerusalem, right? But then they, by their own volition, their own Spirit-filled concern and love for Paul, they've decided to urge him not to go. Does that make sense? So the Spirit's spoken to them about what will happen, and because of their spiritual concern for Paul, they urge him not to go. It was in the Spirit, but I don't think we've got a contradiction where the Spirit is saying to Paul to go and then saying to Paul not to go. So that's the first one. The second question, though, is a bit awkward. It comes from Agabus' prophecy. We saw already that his words are so reminiscent of Jesus' words, right? But the problem is, Paul wasn't exactly bound by the Jews, as he said. And he wasn't exactly handed over to the Gentiles. In fact, if we read a bit later, it seems like he was kind of rescued from the Jews by the Gentiles and then bound by the What's going on? Listen to this uh, from chapter 21, verse 31 to 36. It's actually just, just a bit later in the chapter. While they, that's the Jews, were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he was done. Uh Uh-oh. I think you got agabusted. Thanks, Josh. Or did he? It's funny. Luke doesn't seem to have any issues affirming that Agabus is a real prophet, does he? He's done it twice in Acts. And then Paul himself, in Acts 28, 17 to 19, Paul says this when he's, when he's recounting what happens. My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people, the Jews, or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans, the Gentiles. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death, but the Jews objected. So I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I think we need to interpret the words about the Jews as causative. If the Jews hadn't tried to oppose Paul, if they hadn't beat him up, he wouldn't have been bound and he wouldn't have been handed over to the Gentiles. The the actions of the Jews are causative. And so I think we can still say that this is a legit prophecy and God has fulfilled it. So what are the implications of all of this prophetic stuff? Well, predictive prophecy, prediction, and special revelation from the Spirit it was definitely a feature of the early church. 
but it may be less common now because we're not at the dawn of a new age anymore. We're not ushering in a new age of salvation. In addition to that, the Bible, the canon, God's revelation, is now complete. It wasn't back then. We now have all the revelation from God in Scripture that we need for life and godliness. And so prophecy now often looks more like bringing God's given word, the Scriptures, to bear in our context. All right, speaking the word into a situation before the people that are with us uh, or the situation we're in. So I think that's, that's what we see with prophecy then and now. I think the second implication is that both men and women are to prophesy. We see that, don't we? And so my dear sisters, you have a special and important part to play in God's plan, as well as my brothers. We each must know our Bibles well so that we can indeed, by the Spirit's leading, speak that word into any given situation that we're in or with the people that we find ourselves alongside. In fact, even the least of us, the the prophecy in Joel talks about sons, daughters, even the servants, all of us who are in Christ, have the Spirit poured out on us. We can each bring God's word to each other. And finally, I think we see from these prophecies and the work of the Spirit and the fulfillment that God is powerfully in control of these events, even difficult events and suffering, that his divine purposes are playing out. And so I think that means that we need not fear any situation that we are in, but courageously entrust ourselves to God's purposes. Okay. Final part in our three-part mini-sermon on this passage. Um, Three mini-sermons, but I think they're all connected. Let's talk about affection and fellowship in Christ. We're near the end. We saw the affection in the previous passage, between Paul and the Ephesian elders, didn't we? Uh, And and we get it even in verse 1 of our passage. Have a look at verse 1. There's this real sense of not wanting to part from them, but being dragged away, torn away by this need to set sail on the boat. That's with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. But the disciples at Tyre, when we get to verse 4, well, they're much less well-known to Paul. He likely kind of knows of them. He's traveled through Phoenicia. That's the region. Uh, We see that in Acts 15, verse 3. But there's certainly not the kind of relationship with these disciples in Tyre that he had with the Ephesian elders. He spent around three years in Ephesus, right? But Paul seeks them out, and he spends the whole week with them. By the end of which, what do we see? A repeat scene of what happened with the Ephesians just before. We see the Tyrians so affectionate towards Paul that they urge him not to go to Jerusalem. And they, including their whole families, they all come out of the city and they come down to the beach with Paul to the very last moment. They kneel on the beach to pray together. Even after just a week, there is this deep spiritual bond between the Christians there. 
There is a deep spiritual bond between Christians that is unique. And we see this affection again in verse 12 after Agabus' prophecy. We see, uh, it says, um, oh, not the, yep. Uh, It says, we, that's Paul's companions, and the people in Caesarea, they plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem to suffer. But Paul answers them in verse 13, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul shattered. They're crying and they're begging him not to go because there's this affection and this deep fellowship and love they have for Paul. Their love that they have is such that they, they want to protect him from harm. And so they, they try to dissuade Paul from going, even from this divinely commissioned purpose. And it breaks Paul's heart. Now, I think this is really hard for us, isn't it? Imagine seeing someone you love in great danger of suffering for the gospel, what's your natural reaction? Well, your natural reaction is you want to stop it from happening. You don't want your loved ones to suffer, but the problem is sometimes, and we see in this passage, it can actually be contrary to God's good purposes for the gospel. See what Paul says. He's ready to be bound, and if necessary, follow in the footsteps of Jesus, and die in Jerusalem. Now, in the end, he won't die, um, but the Holy Spirit has even told him earlier that prison and hardships are facing him in every city. Real suffering. And then after Agabus' prophecy, well, it's clear that the Spirit has compelled Paul to go and that Paul knows he will suffer for Christ's purposes. Paul knows it, but it's God's will. What is the right response from those who love him? What's the right response from us when those we love encounter suffering for the gospel? I think we see it in this passage in verse 14 in the parallel with what Jesus says in the garden. The Lord's will be done. This is the right response. Now, certainly, we ought to pray for those who suffer. Jesus did for himself. He said, Father, if you're willing, if it's possible, take this away. But more than that, more than that, not our will be done, but God's. That's hard, isn't it? That's really hard, but it is good. So what are the implications from this final bit? Well, first, it is to have a deep care for brothers and sisters. The affection and emotion that we see in this passage and in the previous section with the Ephesians, it's pretty intense, right? Um, To some of us, it probably feels more like high school drama than it does to proper, appropriate Christian relationships. But I actually think we probably can open ourselves up to a little bit more vulnerability with each other and affection with each other than we're used to in our fellowship. We don't want to be ruled by our emotions, for sure. But I think they actually have a valuable place in strengthening our fellowship with each other 
and the bond that we have as the body of Christ. So let's have each other in our homes and in the mess of our lives. Let's be vulnerable with each other. Let's share what's really going on more and more. And so be able to more and more bear each other's burdens. Let's be willing to actually express affection and care for each other and for it to not just be too weird to do. But with all that said, we mustn't let it hinder God's purposes. And so we need to be careful that our love for someone, good love for someone, doesn't cause us to dissuade them from honoring God. And I think this can be particularly hard for those of us like me who have kids. Ezra is only 19 months old, but at some point he'll grow up. And it seems pretty unbearable to be okay with our own kids making a decision that might cause them to suffer even if it's for godly reasons. But as our kids grow up and they begin to stand up for Jesus in a world that is opposed to him, they will most likely be thought of badly for being a Christian. As they make decisions about study or about work that we might feel isn't going to produce the best material outcomes, but it might give them more opportunity to grow in Christ, I dropped some subjects at uni so that I could spend more time involved in campus Bible study, the Christian group. When our kids make those kind of decisions, what's our reaction going to be? What if they even want to be a missionary in a dangerous location? What's our counsel to them going to be? Are we going to dissuade them because we're afraid of them suffering? Or will we be able to say, Not my will, but the Lord's will be done. So, friends, was Paul right? Well, yes, he was. But only because, not because he he got what was going to happen in Jerusalem right, but he was right because he was following the Lord's will. Paul journeyed to Jerusalem with God's leading, in service of God, even though he knew he was going to suffer, even with his friends dissuading them out of their genuine love for him. We see in this passage that following Jesus can be hard. Our convictions about God's leading can be hard to follow through. We see that bringing the word to bear on situations can be hard, and love and fellowship can even be hard. But in this passage, we see the goodness of God and his gospel purposes. We see God's will be done. Will we also pray, not my will, but your will be done? Let's pray that now. Heavenly Father, we pray that your will be done, not ours. Heavenly Father, we pray against suffering indeed. But, Father, we know that sometimes for the good purposes of the gospel and for salvation, we will encounter suffering, that serving Christ, even for the joy set before us in eternity, will be hard. Heavenly Father, help us to have the strength and conviction to follow your will for us in our lives. 
Heavenly Father, help us also to be well equipped with the word so that we might speak your word into those situations which we encounter and that others might be able to speak your word to us. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our fellowship together in love and care for one another, not so that we would uh, be fearful about suffering and dissuade each other from your purposes, but instead so that we might pray for strength for one another and that your will will be done even through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.